Good evening, everyone. Uh, let's stand together for the public reading of God's Word. We're going to read from Hebrews 4. It's page 1203 in the Red Pew Bibles. Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed have entered that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Grab a seat. I want to welcome Will. Will, come and join me here. I'm going to pray for you, bro. Uh, Will, some of you will know, serves as pastor at uh, Milltown Baptist in Beaver. Known Will for many years. And Will, it's so good to have you here Thank tonight. You. And I'm going to pray thank for him. So let me pray and please join me in praying for Will. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And thank you for your servant. And I commit Will to you now as he opens up your word to us. And as he speaks from your word, may it penetrate our hearts and our minds. So may well be very aware of your presence right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, Davy, for the welcome. It is a real joy to be with you here uh, this evening. Um, Davy's given me a wee bit of an introduction, and uh, we've Davy read the passage for us, and we're continuing on in our series, in the series that you've been looking at called Elevated Jesus. And uh, that's where we are. And tonight we're carrying on and Tonight we're going to be looking at these verses, verses 1 to 13. There's a lot in these verses that Davy's read. And uh, the title of tonight's talk is Rest for Your Souls. This Friday evening, or Friday all day, the 21st of June, is going to be the longest day of the year. And New York's Times Square, one of the world's busiest crossroads, will come to a complete standstill. And the event is called Mind Over Madness. And there will be over 20,000 people gathered there at Times Square. 
and they will do yoga classes from 7.30 a.m. in the morning until sunset. One of the organizers said this, it's a pushback against the madness and stress everyone has to deal with every day in their lives. By doing yoga in the heart of the city, we can experience peace, an amazing way to start the summer. I'm sure we can all identify with the, that idea of the madness and the stress of life in the 21st century. Life is so fast, so demanding. We're bombarded continually with information. But there's a very serious side to this as well, this dealing with stress and anxiety. The Princess Trust conducted a survey in Northern Ireland in recent years, and they interviewed over 2,000 people aged 16 to 25. And the result was that 68% of young people always or often feel stressed and anxious. 40% didn't feel in control of their lives. Just last Monday, I took a funeral. Uh, a couple from Beaver had given my number to a family in the Sandy Row area, and a young girl, 19 years of age, had died, and it was to do with drugs. And it was a real tragedy and a real difficulty. And as I was preparing for this talk, it illustrated the seriousness uh, of just the stress and the anxiety that people live with. I went on the internet, and some of the headings uh, aren't, aren't very good, very encouraging. It says, getting heroin in Belfast as easy as getting cigarettes. NI Hospital sees 300% spike in drug overdoses. Addiction to prescription drugs in NI is at epidemic levels. You could go on and on and on. There is a human longing to know and experience lasting rest. And yet, it seems so far out of reach for so many people in our society today. It was Augustine, the great guy from church history, and he wrote about his own life, how in his own life there was a restlessness. His life was marked with a succession of, of desperate searches for fulfillment. It took him into a hedonistic lifestyle where he sought, he sought peace and rest and joy in, in excessive pleasures to no avail. He went wandering into false religion and philosophy until his eyes were opened by God's amazing grace and he became a committed follower of Christ. And he famously wrote these words and they're up on the screen. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. A profound statement that rest, true rest, can only be found in God. And the biblical understanding of rest does not mean emptying your mind, like over 20,000 people will do on Friday coming, but rather it is a cleansing and a filling of the mind with God's truth. And from that truth, from that place of submission, seeking to do God's will, putting God's will into practice, and loving God with all your heart. So we're going to 
start working on these verses and working our way through. Before we do that, I just want us to sort of recapture some of where we were because I know it's a couple of weeks have passed since we've looked at this. And this is a, a warning section. I mean, when you're, I said to David earlier, when you're invited to a church, it's nice to speak on a book of Philippians or something, you know, which is, you know, very warm uh, to the heart. But we're in the, middle, we're in the middle of a warning here. And it begins at chapter 3, verse 7 of Hebrews, and it carries on through to chapter 4, verse 13. And the writer has shown that Jesus is greater than Moses in the first six verses of chapter 3. And then he begins this warning against unbelief. And he writes this to his original audience. Now, who were they? They were Hebrews. They were Israelites. We know on the day of Pentecost, during Peter's sermon, he repeatedly says, fellow Israelites, my fellow Israelites, he appeals to them. And from Acts, we get a picture of the various responses of people to the good news of Jesus. And there were people who believed. There were people who put their trust in the Lord Jesus when they heard the good news being proclaimed to them. We read in Acts that that 3,000 that day gave their lives to Christ. And then after that, there were more and more people daily being added unto their number, all Jewish people. The first Christians were Jews. But it was difficult for these people. They faced hostility. They faced rejection. They faced even persecution. And we get this as we work our way through the book of Hebrews, as the writer writes to encourage them to keep going on, to keep fixing their eyes upon Jesus so that they don't lose heart, to continue on. So it's a real challenge for these believers. And then, secondly, there's intellectually persuaded people. They, they listened and they agreed to what was being said, but they refused to trust in the Lord. They resisted the truth that was being proclaimed to them, and they remained uncommitted. And as a result of that unbelief, they became disobedient to the command to repent and to believe the good news of Jesus. And of course, we read as well, when you read Paul's missionary journeys, there was just hostile rejection. And Paul had to flee from certain cities as people aggressively opposed the gospel. So the writer here says, therefore, and it brings us back, so it does, to to what's been said in chapter 3. And we all know as Christians, David said this in his last talk, we all know people who once walked with the Lord, people who identified themselves as being Christians, people who perhaps were even very involved in the life of a church, but sadly, they're not walking with the Lord. And we know that there can be lots of various reasons why that can happen in a person's life. But the writer here said, and Davy said this in the last time, about, about four conditions of the heart. He talked about a hard heart. He talked about a sinful heart. He talked about an unbelieving heart and a heart that turns away from the living God. And he's writing to this, to, to this group of Hebrews, Christians, and people who are, who are thinking about Christianity and the claims of Christ. And he employs an illustration of unbelief from Israel's history. And we all know well the story of the 12 spies who went out 
and they all returned. And yes, they all saw the big hills. They saw the fortified cities. They saw the giants, the warriors that were there. And the 10 of them said, no way. But we know that Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can do it with God at our side. And God had already promised that he would give his people the land. And yet the 10, they grumbled, they complained. The word spread about and they were resisting God. And God swore an oath that those who had disobeyed him, those who are described as being evil and unbelieving, would, not, would never enter his rest. So the writer introduces us to this idea of rest at the close of chapter 3. So what is this rest? What is it that he's speaking of? There's two ideas to this rest. The first idea is the idea of which we're all familiar. It's ceasing to strive, ceasing to, to perform, ceasing and stopping to try to earn your way with God. And the other aspect of it is, more positively perhaps, is living by faith, trusting in the Lord, surrendering our wills to, to what he says and obeying his word. So we read in Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So God is the God who gives rest to his people. He is the source of this rest. And when we, when we look at Israel's history, practically as the people were delivered from Egyptian slavery, as they were Wandering in the wilderness, Reyes spoke of this ceasing from their wilderness wanderings. God promised them rest when they would go into the land. And then when they got into the land, Joshua, who led the people into the land and into the battle for the land, the idea of rest there carried the idea of, of a cessation, a rest from battle against their enemies. But these rests were unfulfilled. These rests were incomplete, as Israel's history clearly teaches. So the writer to Hebrews is drawing lessons from history to his people about those who were disobedient and refused to enter into God's rest. And then we've got this idea in the verses Davy read about Sabbath rest. Now, we need to do this background, and then we're going to go through the verses quite rapidly. But the writer talks about this Sabbath rest, and it's this idea that creation, God created the world in six days, and then God rested from his creative work. God, the omnipotent God, was satisfied that all that he had created was good. God was satisfied in himself. And at that time, man and God walked together in the cool of the day. Man was at perfect rest with his God, finding complete satisfaction in his creator. But we know the story that this rest was broken. It was shattered when sin entered into the world. And a restlessness entered into the human experience. And an exchange took place. 
The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans when he talks about the condition of humanity in chapter 1. And the exchange was that man began to worship created things rather than the creator who is ever to be praised. So God established the Sabbath rhythm of rest to enable his people to reset in their fallenness, to reset, to realign themselves to him, to worship him and to remember the great deeds that he would do for them. So this rest, this Sabbath rest, pointed forward to a greater fulfillment. So the writer of Hebrews is writing to the, this Jewish audience who are very familiar with this. This is, this is their culture. This is their understanding of themselves and their history. But the point he's getting at here is then that this rest speaks of salvation. When Christ came and walked among us, when he died upon the cross as we've been remembering, this rest can come through putting our faith and our trust in him, who he is and what he has done for us. Through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, when we put our faith in him, when we put our trust in him, we can know rest, rest for our souls. This rest, and the Lord said in, in Matthew's gospel, we'll come to that at the end, he said, come to me, those who are heavy burdened, those who are weary, and I will give you rest. He was speaking about his finished work on the cross, he was speaking about putting our trust and our faith in his finished work and ceasing from our own efforts to try to win God's approval. But it also speaks to us of a continued rest for the believer, a continual entering into God's rest and knowing God's rest, rest for our souls. It speaks to us as believers about remaining in Christ, about growing in Christ, about maturing in our faith, about being strengthened in his love, about learning to die to sin and to self, about living by faith on a daily basis, trusting in God's promises, surrendering our wills to his, walking in obedience to his word. This is how we continually to experience this rest. So the writer says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful. Now the word there is actually fear. It says, let us be afraid. He says, pay attention. Be diligent to this. This is really important. Take a lesson from history. Learn a lesson from the dead so that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The word shared there is the word used for mixture. These people had heard the word of God. These people could agree with the word of God tick all the boxes, but they did not mix it with faith. And whenever 
the word of God is mixed with faith, it produces something. And what it produces is obedience in our lives. Now, this speaks to those who are not Christians. You might know the gospel. You might be familiar with it. You might be able to even tell others about it. I could have done that before I became a Christian. But you need to mix that with faith. And whenever you mix that with faith, obedience comes out within that person's life. It's crazy when you think of it. Imagine going to a restaurant with your family. You go into a restaurant, you're all ready, you're sitting down, and, and everybody's got the menus, and you're reading the menus, and, uh, and you're thinking, you're talking about it, and you, 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 you've read it, and you know everything that's on there. You're even, even able to tell other people about it. And then the person comes around and says, well, okay, what are you ordering? And you say, no, I'm not going to bother eating. I'm not going to order anything. This is the idea of faith calls us into action, calls us to make a decision, to make a commitment and act upon that. So there's a note of warning, and the note of warning continues. I mean, it, it's repeated throughout these verses. It continues in verse 3. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And the writer's the writer is quoting Psalm 95, verse 11. He quotes it again in verse 5. He's giving us a warning. And he's warning those who are sitting on the fence, who have not committed to Christ. He's encouraging them to put their trust and faith in Christ. And I believe also for us as Christians, followers, he's speaking to us and he's encouraging us to ensure that we're remaining in Christ. That we're growing in grace. That we're intentional about maturing in our faith. That we want to be strengthened in his love. We want to die to that sinful heart that we looked at at the beginning. That we want to become more fully alive to God in our lives. So there's a warning here. And then he, he appeals and he points to God's rest on the Sabbath day. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken. Remember, there were no chapters or, or verse distinctions back then. So there was not came much later on. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. He quotes what we know now as Genesis 2 and 2. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. I came across a, a quote that captures all that I want to say by a guy called Jeffrey Wilson. He said, The Sabbath was a creation ordinance which placed the day of rest at the end of six days of work. But when Adam sinned, it became impossible for man to attain the rest of God by his own efforts. That is so true. It's impossible for us in our fallenness and brokenness to attain this rest that only God can give us by our own efforts. Therefore, this now required nothing less than a new creation. And by keeping the Sabbath on the first day of the week, which is established in the dying and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of God gladly acknowledged that their entrance into this rest depends entirely on 
upon the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ. Isn't that so true? The rest, the peace that we know with God depends entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning death upon the cross. But also, our sanctification depends upon the work and ministry of the Spirit of Jesus Christ working in us. He has come and he is in our lives and he is working in us. God has, God has began this good work in us and he wants to carry it on to completion. And there's this dependence upon him to carry out that work. And we as Christians, there's a great freedom and a great joy in this for us. And many Christians at times find it difficult to receive God's grace and God's love in our lives. Sometimes we can live with regret. We, can, we, we, we allow things in the past to, to cloud our vision. We struggle. And yet, God wants us to know rest in our souls. We need to come with our burdens. We need to come with our challenges. We need to come with the pain in our hearts. The things that have happened that have caused us such sorrow, we need to bring them to the Lord. Because he alone can give us that rest. As a Christian, I believe that we need to be continually entering into that rest, knowing that rest more and more in our lives. And again, the writer in verse 5 reissues the warning again. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. I wonder as a Christian... Are you coming to church, listening to God's word, but never really eating? I mean, you might be good at having a conversation with others about the word. You might be able to know it and be able to say it and talk about it. But I wonder, is it getting down into your soul? I wonder, are you nourishing your soul on the word of God? I wonder, are you mixing the hearing with faith? Is that the kind of person you are? I also read about a group of people in England who, who read and memorize train times. What a ridiculous thing to do. And yet none of them ever go on a journey on the trains. <laughs> they can tell you when a train's leaving London and it's going to arrive in, in Liverpool. They can tell you all the times. They've memorized it. No, but they've never taken a journey. And I know as Christians, we can get off. We can be on the train, and we can get off the train. Something can happen in our lives. Something unforeseen can come in. Somebody could say a harsh word. Something could come in, a loss of a job, a loss of financial security. That sense of, of just sorrow in your life, and maybe that sense of distance from, from God. And, and you, you get off the train. I want to encourage you tonight to get back on the train if that's where you are. Because it's very serious that we make every effort. And that's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. In true sermon fashion, Davy and I love this, the writer continues to repeat and reinforce his point. And he says, therefore, since it still remains, the rest still remains, it remains for some to enter that rest. And since those 
who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Again, he's saying this is really important. Real faith always produces obedience in the believer's life. It doesn't mean we, we, we don't struggle, but this is the outcome. It produces obedience. Now, I'm telling you guys, I, I think sometimes within churches, the word obedience isn't even mentioned. It's almost like a word sometimes that we, we, we try to avoid. Hopefully, it's not the case in Windsor. But it can become like that. This is of real vital importance. This, this life, for this life and the next, so don't put it off. Don't say maybe tomorrow. No, no. God again set a certain day, calling it today. Today is the time for you to bring yourself, to bring your heart before this throne of grace, to receive mercy, the mercy and grace that you need, and to receive the help and the strength that only God can give you. Today is today. Today is the day. He points to David, their greatest king uh, in, in Jewish history. He says, this he did when a long time later, this God did when a long time later, he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He wants and he's turning. David has this saying, and the saying is that the, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Those words are so, so true. We might laugh at that, but I'm telling you guys, that is so, so true. And it's a great saying. And the writer's saying, don't be hardening your heart. As believers, we should be able to check our hearts and be aware of what's happening in our inner life. We should be aware when things come in and we, we find ourselves maybe bitterness starting to take a root in our lives. The writer says that, doesn't he, later on? See to it that no root of bitterness grows up in any of you. You know, because it, it will defile you. It'll work its way out in your life in all sorts of ways. So we've got to look at our hearts. Do not harden your hearts. The writer then highlights that Joshua could not give the people rest. If Joshua, he says in verse 8, had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Rather, Joshua pointed forward to a time when God would make rest possible. True rest, a rest that only God can give. Rest for our souls. So now as God's redemptive purposes in Christ have been revealed, remember at the beginning of Hebrews, he says, in the past, God spoke to us in many ways at various times through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And he speaks about Jesus' death upon the cross. So now as God's redemptive plan has been unfurled, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. This is the idea where we learn that our striving, that our external performance that are trying to earn God's favor and approval and acceptance is futile when it comes to salvation. But also as believers, it calls us to live in God's rest where we're ceasing to strive and perform. Everybody might think, wow, wow, 
But on the, the outward appearance looks great, but in the heart, where is our hearts? We need to be, as believers, choosing to continually live by faith, trusting in Christ, surrendering to His will, choosing to worship our Creator and Redeemer, choosing to find our satisfaction in Him. Despite what the world will tell us, despite the many things that are put down before us, only God can bring true satisfaction. We are called to be intentional about this, to be diligent, to have a holy fear in these matters. Now, not a fear that causes you to run away and car away, but a fear that stands you in awe of God, our Creator and our Redeemer. This, this fear of the Lord that draws us in to Him we're called to be intentional. And he says in verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now this raises the question, I'm going to be quick here before I go into the, the final tying things up. This raises the question, can a believer perish due to being disobedient? The answer to that is no. Notice the word believer is someone who has believed, truly believed. All genuine believers stumble and fall and struggle with sin. We have to be honest about that and real about that and not hide that. We believe in the eternal security of the believer. However, we must also recognize that genuine belief always results in obedience, always produces obedience in the long run of the Christian life. Jesus himself in Matthew 7 said, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Jesus said in John 14 that authentic love for him always involves obedience. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching and my commands. Genuine love for Christ works its way out in obedience to his revealed truth. So that's very important. For those who have walked away, for whatever reason, we don't know sometimes whether their faith is genuine or not. It's not ours to judge. It is ours to love, to pray, and to seek, to seek to gently work for restoration in that person's life. Being careful lest you also were tempted, as Paul said to the Galatians. But I think we've got to be honest here. Can there be false conversions to Christianity? Yes, there can. Just this week, preparing for the talk, I spoke to a girl who, who is involved in worship within a church, a big church. And she said that a guy was there, came along to the church, and he was very gifted at playing guitar. Very quickly, he got up into the, into the band in the church and was playing. And he approached her soon after that and said, I'd like to lead the worship. He wasn't that long a believer. And she checked him and said, said to him, I think maybe you should just play. Just enjoy playing and 
Grow in your faith. Grow in your walk with God. Grow in your relationship with God. Three weeks later, he left the church. He went to another church. And she told me he didn't last there too long. And she said that she'd met him recently. And he's now all over social media. I'm an atheist. And he's moved in with a, a girl. And he's now living with a girl. What do you do with something like that? <laughs> Is he genuinely a Christian? Was he genuinely a Christian? What are people buying into whenever it comes to Christianity? What are we giving them? What message is the church giving people today? A lot of big questions there, but we're called to pray and to love people, not to judge. <laughs> but we need to be wise as well and discerning, don't we? Remember, Peter said this to Peter 1. He said, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is, am I making every effort? Are you making every effort you look at your life to live by faith, to keep trusting in Christ, to keep surrendering to His will, to keep worshiping Him, your Creator, your Redeemer, to find your satisfaction in Him. And I conclude with this. These verses are often read and memorized. This is them in their context. The writer of the Hebrew says, for the word of God is alive and active. What an amazing picture of the word of God. The word of God has different purposes. Scriptures tell us it's a lamp for our feet that leads us and guides us along the way. It's food for our souls to nourish us, to strengthen us in our faith. It's a mirror that can show us where, some, where we need to maybe change things. The Word of God has an intentional purpose and it speaks. God speaks to us through His Word and He speaks for a reason. And the writer here describes the Word as being sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word is like the Word, the word is a dagger. It's, it's a short instrument. It's a precise instrument that penetrates deeply even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God is the great physician. Our Lord loves us and cares for us. Through his word, he objectively reveals and exposes and makes known what is really in there. Remember, David said, search me, O God, and know my heart today. See if there's any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God does this because he is a great physician. He wants to bring healing to our souls. He wants us to know his love and his grace more and more and more in our lives. He wants us to mature in our faith. So that's why he reveals our hearts to us. That's what his word does. His word makes us 
aware of our need for the Savior's grace, forgiveness, and mercy. His Word creates within us a longing for the Spirit's wisdom and leading and guiding and strength. The Word enables us to live fruitful lives for Christ. So the writer says, don't be deceiving yourselves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Walk in His ways because there is nothing in all creation hidden from His sight. He knows you completely and He loves you completely. He knows the things in your life that are hindering you and stopping you from running the race. He wants to show you those so you can throw them off so that you can run with perseverance the race marked out for you. He wants you to fix your eyes on Jesus so you don't grow weary and lose heart. And maybe you're here tonight and you need to hear that from your Lord. He loves you. His heart is for you. His banner over you is love. Nothing hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All of us will stand before him one day and give an account. And that's a wonderful thing for the believer. <laughs> that's a, an amazing thing for the believer because we will enter into the fullness of God's rest. In Revelation 14, verse 13, these words are said, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors for their deeds 